We've been walking in this series of Wait and Hope. We wait with the prophets, the apostles, and the martyrs. We remember the wait of those who waited for the birth of Christ, and we also still wait for the full usher of the new creation. That uh, great line in the Christmas hymn, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, is certainly one of the great lines in our hymnody. And uh, as you see from the grace of the Asbury Compressed Church year, uh, this is the day that we actually move into the Nativity. Uh, there are uh, eight passages in the New Testament that focus on Nativity. There's three in Matthew and five in Luke, a total of eight. I'm not counting the amazing one verse in John, John 1.14, uh, where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, which I think is, you might call that the thesis statement of, uh, of the Nativity. It's good to remember that, by the way, if you're in your paper still, have a good thesis statement. Uh, that's the thesis statement. But we have eight passages in the New Testament, uh, three in Matthew, uh, five in Luke. Now, Luke is the uh, sequence of Nativity uh, that we know most are familiar with. It has five parts. And four of them are centered around songs. So you have the Annunciation, you have the Magnificat, you have the Gloria, the Benedictus, and the Nutimetus. And if you remember, the Annunciation, of course, is when Gabriel appears to Mary in that famous line, how can this be since I am a virgin? Uh, you have the Magnificat, which, of course, when Mary visits uh, uh, and Elizabeth, and we hear that amazing song which we discussed or, or preached on last week. Uh, Gloria is when the shepherd, the actual birth of Christ, the shepherds are there, and you have the wonderful, you know, angels singing, Gloria in excelsis Deo. These are all texts that we know. Uh, the fourth is the song of Zechariah, when he uh, is uh, delivered the, the news of the birth of John the Baptist, another miracle, and he uh, has this beautiful song, Preparing the Way, for the uh, Messiah, the, the one who will come and prepare the way. And finally, the Nuptimidus is, of course, the song of, uh, of Simeon in the temple when Christ was eight days old. And this is when he says, Lord, dismiss your servant in peace. My eyes have seen the salvation of our God. Five texts, four of them are songs. The Matthew's Gospel uh, contains no songs at all. Uh, they all three if there's any connection, at least one of the connections is they all involve dreams. So in Matthew's Gospel, you have the birth of Christ, the Magi, and in our text today, the flight to Egypt. The birth of Jesus is the only time you have the actual encounter with Joseph, and it happens in a dream. So the whole thing where the angel says, he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, all of that happens inside Joseph's divinely inspired head. Is that okay to say that? It's a dream that he has, and the God visits him in the dream. Um, the Magi, of course, have bringing gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh, etc. But then they're warned in a dream to escape and go by another way, and that is part of that sequence. And then finally, we have the flight to Egypt, where most uh, Joseph is warned in a dream uh, to flee and go to Egypt. Now, I've preached on all of these passages except for one in my lifetime. I preached on, I think, three, at least three of them here at Asbury, but I've never preached on the flight to Egypt. And I think in some ways that in itself is interesting because it raises the question, um, does this really belong to the nativity narratives? Is this really a part of the story 
we have so much familiarity with the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, the Elizabeth, Zechariah, Emmanuel, the innkeeper, but not so much the flight to Egypt. Does the flight to Egypt belong uh, to the Christmas story? And is it about time that I finally preach on it? I'm, you know, getting to the point in my life where I have a bucket list, like things I need to preach on. This is one of them. Um, now, we may not know how to fit that in, but we do know how to push Matthew and Luke together. Uh, every pastor knows this. Uh, when I was a pastor, we, of course, had the annual nativity plays. Uh, we had all our kids would dress up. You know, we, we, we had so many kids, and we, we want to include them all in the nativity plays. And so we had, you know, kids who played Mary, Joseph, of course. We had the, the shepherds, you know, there. And, of course, at some point, the wise men would march down the aisle in their bathrobes, you know with their little crowns on, the, the shepherds were there kneeling with their broomsticks or whatever. We always did all that, and we loved it. We never included the flight to Egypt. We, and if, if we had too many children, which we often did, we, would, we were more creative. We would like add angels to the angelic choir. That's how almost an unlimited number of kids could be absorbed in that. One year, we, we had so many of them, we couldn't quite get them all on the stage, so we had to create a lot of kids who their only play role was to be a star. So we cut out these beautiful stars on their head and their job was to sit there and smile. We had a few crying stars, but we, we got through the nativity sequence. But we never said, hey, let's create, you know, let's include the flight to Egypt. We could push all the other texts, but not that. That's just a little too disturbing for us. So we kind of let it slide and we never did it. So, again, the question, should we embrace this as part of the Christmas story? And I want to say yes, but let's take a look at this and see. Now, the passage begins uh, with the angel appearing to Joseph in a dream. Now, think about this. Joseph is sound asleep. The angel comes to him and in the dream warns him that Herod is out to kill the baby Jesus and he has to get up right then and flee that very night. Now, just to get the, the scope of this, the distance from Bethlehem to Egypt is 428 miles. Just let that kind of roll over you a little bit. Okay, there are no Starbucks in between the two. Not yet anyway. I think there are now. Um, there, was, there were no holiday inns, there were no Krogers, there was nothing like that. It was arid, dangerous terrain, 428 miles. So picture yourself. You're asleep in Grice Hall. I think people do sleep there. You, you're asleep in Grice Hall, or Orlean, or you're in Sundu Kim, you're in Callis Village, Betty Morrison, wherever it is that you may sleep. You're there asleep and suddenly a dream comes to you and tells you to get up that night, this is in your dream, and flee 428 miles on the spot. Oh, by the way, with your brand new newborn baby. Think about it. Okay, give us some idea of the distance here. Okay, if you were told to, in your dream, get up and go to Nashville, all right, Nashville is 214 miles from Wilmore, according to my Google, which is exactly halfway there. Okay, this would be like getting up and, go, and walking to Nashville and back. Are you ready? 
Don't take your exams. Don't, do, don't go to lunch today. Go to Nashville and back. You better start now. Some of you are already getting up and going. <laughs> it's 370 miles to Chicago from here. 380 miles to Pittsburgh from here. 382 miles to Atlanta from here. It's amazing. This is 428 miles they're called to travel from Bethlehem all the way to Egypt. Now, think about it. Wouldn't it be much less, a lot easier, a lot less disruptive of God if he just kind of gave Herod a stroke and took him out on the spot? I mean, that would be really easy, just bang. Herod would be dead within a year or so anyway. So, Lord, just speed it up a little bit. Save us all this disruption. Why go to Egypt? He could have fled to the Decapolis, less than 100 miles away, and been perfectly safe, and no language barrier. There are a lot of things he could have done. But God said, go to Egypt and do it now. Well, what is this? What's going on here? And is this part of God's redemptive story? Well, what do we do? We have these questions. We go to the text itself and we look at the text. What does the text say to us? Because the text actually gives us the first clue. The flight to Egypt, we're told, happened to fulfill what the Lord had said through Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you go back to read Hosea and read the passage, it doesn't come across at all like a prophecy about some future event. It's really about the past. He's saying, you know, uh, it's about God calling Israel out of Egyptian bondage the, through to Sinai, the Ten Commandments, forming them into his, his redeemed people. But there's one thing about the passage which should strike you as a bit odd. It certainly struck Matthew as odd and should strike you. And that is, that it says, that not out of Egypt I called my people, but out of Egypt I called my son. Now that is almost unprecedented in the prophets. Only happens one other time. It's very, very unusual to have Israel referred to as the son of God. And so Matthew probably had this in his mind. And, but the point is the passage is trying to point us in a different direction than we normally do. The reason we didn't have that in our Christmas plays is because the idea of folks on Bethlehem and the horror of that, the evil of that, is just too much to bear. It's children slaughtered to death on that night. Interesting about that is the gospel points us another direction, which is Egypt itself. And I want to talk about why Jesus goes to Egypt. That's the first point I think we need to understand here. The fact that Jesus goes through 428 miles to get him into Egypt is because Jesus is recapitulating the whole life of Israel, isn't he? Right? Jesus is the new Israel. He is the head of the new nation, the new redeemed people of God. So Jesus Christ is uh, embodying essentially the, being the second Moses. Now in our, in our history, in our study of, of the New Testament, we're well aware how Christ is portrayed as the second Adam. We rehearse that quite a bit. Paul develops Romans 5 to it. Uh, we know the passage, of course, in Genesis where Adam is there in the garden. Uh, he, uh, he basically says uh, to, to God, uh, you know, not your will but mine be done. And he plunges us into this 
horrific state of sin, much worse than anything Herod ever did. But here we are, uh, Christ comes, we have him appearing in a second garden, the garden not of Eden, but of Gethsemane, and he, of course, says, not my will, but yours be done. And we have this wonderful theology of Christ being the second Adam. But he's also the second Moses. And it's interesting, if you look at Matthew's passage, Matthew does something that we don't actually have in Luke. We think we do, we don't. When the angel appeared to uh, Mary in Luke, there's no reference to Jesus' name. The name Jesus, at least, is not there. He says that you're, he'll be the son of the most high God. He'll take on the throne of his father, David. There's endless, amazing titles given to Christ, but no reference to the name Jesus until he's at the temple at eight days old. Now, the language in Luke is about kingship, the Davidic line. It's about ruling and reigning. But in Matthew's gospel, he uses the name Jesus, which means savior. It's deliverer language. It's about Moses. And so we see this is part of the huge uh, part of this as Christ goes into Egypt. And it's meant to be difficult. Christ, even now as a baby, is taking on the pain and suffering of traveling 428 miles into the difficulty of Egypt. And then out of Egypt, I called my son. He comes out of Egypt and recapitulates the whole history of Israel. But in the amazing part of this passage, there is yet another reason for this. And I think there may be an important distinction between the phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, and into Egypt I sent my son. Because that's the second side of this. The second reason for this really actually, to put it bluntly, has nothing whatsoever to do with Israel no connection to the Exodus or recapitulating the Exodus of the Red Sea or any of that, any of the great themes of Israel. This is about something to do with God's plan for the non-chosen nations of the world. This is about God's love for Egyptians. Now, I think it's important to put yourself in the position of what it's like to be an Egyptian. I first got my clue to this when I was with our former president of Asbury, Maxie Dunham, down in Memphis, Tennessee, and he said to me, of course, he spent most of his life in Memphis. And he said to me, you have no idea what it's like to live in Memphis. And what it meant like, one part of his ministry is reconciliation between African-Americans uh, and white communities in, in Memphis. And he's done a lot of work all his life, actually, in racial reconciliation. And he said, one of the challenges of doing it in Memphis is there's a bit of a pall that hangs over the city that you inherit as, even though no, very few are alive today yet that were part of that or were there when it happened, it says it was in our city that Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed. That becomes part of your identity if you are living in Memphis. He said, we actually deal with that in many unspoken ways throughout this city. In the same way, if you're an Egyptian, you cannot help but think about when you read the Bible, and I have Egyptian friends, you read the Bible saying, my people enslave the people of God. Think about it. When we hear the phrase, let my people go, we, read, we hear that through the lens of redemption and, and the exodus and all the great truths of Israel's history. But if you're an Egyptian, you hear that, you realize this is about our people enslaving them. That's a really important, it's a deep burden to bear. 
And so I would say, to put it bluntly, God has some unfinished business with Egypt, even though they don't yet fully realize it. Because there's another hopeful memory that, that through this God stirs up. Because in Genesis 12, by the way, the very place that we're going back with Abraham, God actually brought him to Egypt. And that first savory uh, uh, release of the famine happened first in Genesis 12. Later, of course, it happens again with Joseph where they go to Egypt, where Egypt saves the people of God. Genesis 12, 3, the original covenant, the, the thesis statement, if you want to say, of the Bible, is there in Genesis 12, 3. Not just, I will bless you and your people, which is a, God's going to save the people, the Jews, but no, I'm going to, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. There's that seminal promise that God does not forget, that his purpose, his coming, the purpose of Christ's coming, is in fact to save the world. And so this whole, that deeper song, that more primal song is very, very important. And so by Christ going to Egypt, Egypt now becomes the protector, the haven, the safe haven of Christ himself. The, the, the Messiah is given to the world, is able to give to the world because of the haven and the protection that Egypt provides to this. This is a redemption of Egypt. This is resetting their narratives. And part of what the gospel does is reset our narratives. We often live in broken narratives. We have certain tapes that play in our head like Egyptians did, and the gospel resets those narratives. Amen? And the flight to Egypt is this powerful testimony of the power of the gospel to reconcile all nations and all peoples. So even as a baby, Jesus, in a sense, is acting in a substitutionary way, taking on the world's suffering, becoming, get this, his first identification with a sinful, broken world is to become a refugee. Think about it. We know that in the gospel on the cross, Christ takes on sin. He becomes, in a sense, the embodiment of sinful humanity. But it doesn't, he doesn't work his way up to that. That's who he is. So even as a baby, Christ becomes a refugee in a foreign land, anticipating all the other refugees that would follow who need to be reminded of God's love for them. And perhaps Matthew may have even remembered as he recorded this event, that amazing song in Psalm 87, which we had read earlier today. That short seven verses, it's the only song quite like it, where the psalm is dedicated to, hold on to your chair, the enemies of Israel. Think about it. Rahab, which is, by the way, a poetic name for Egypt. So Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. These are all the enemies of Israel. Enemies they had fought. Enemies that had opposed the people of God, had killed them, enslaved them, ensnared them into endless sins, etc., all of these are the, are the very enemies of Israel. Yet what does Psalm 87 say? It says that they will have the same covenantal claims as the people of Zion. It even goes more than that. It doesn't even say they'll be adopted into the Jewish family. It actually says they will be regarded as native-born. Think about the power of this. Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush being called, this one and that one is born in you. They're born in Zion. They share all the covenant claims of the people of God. This is, in one stroke, 
absolutely wiping away the notion that the Old Testament is just about God's heart for the Jewish people. It's always about God's heart for all God's people. And the whole of Genesis 12, 3 does that. So when you go back and look at the three uh, nativity passages in, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, all three have a deeper link than simply three dream sequences. All three have the deeper link of God's heart for the world. You have Emmanuel, God with us, all of us. All those that were promised from Genesis 12, 3, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. The sequence of the, the Magi, the distant nations streaming to the Christ child, it's a symbol of the whole nations, all the nations coming to the feet of Christ. And of course, thirdly, the flight to Egypt, not simply out of Egypt, I called my son, but into Egypt, I sent my son because I was, I'm concerned about the Egyptians. I'm going to reset their narrative. And I want them to be the nation chosen to harbor, protect the Messiah. Well, what does that have to do with all of us? For us, it means this. We've only heard half of the Christmas story if we remember it and hear it as our deliverance symbolically from Egypt. That is to say, if, if Christmas is simply about we have been delivered from sin and death, we've been rescued through the power of the incarnation. Now that is stunning, amazing, beautiful, good news. But it's only half the gospel. Because the gospel is not simply about our being delivered from anything and everything. It is that, but never less than that. But it's also about our being sent into Egypt, into a lost world, into a world without hope that needs to hear the gospel. So the, the Christmas message is not simply about receiving gifts, the gifts of God, as wonderful as they are, but about what it means for us to embody God's gift of redemption to the world. It's a profoundly Christian thing to enter into the pain of a world that's suffering. It's profoundly Christian that Christ is sent into Egypt with all the pain of 428 miles and the difficulty and the terror of that. Because already we're learning something about what this Messiah is really all about. In the same way we embody this as we go into a world of suffering. The early church actually reminded us, didn't it, that the first Christian martyr wasn't actually Stephen in Acts 7 after all. The first martyrs were these babies. These babies in Matthew 2, they're the first to give their lives for this incredible redemptive moment. And it's reminded all of us that we enter into this pain of the world. Herod's evil is part of the world's narrative. The world is intent on evil. The world is intent on breaking the people of God. But there's this greater narrative that we don't run from it. We walk into it. We face it redemptively. We embody the hope of the gospel by going back into a broken world as the people of God with hope and with joy. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for these, this difficult but challenging passage on the flight to Egypt. And Lord, as we, in our own lives, remind our, we'll be reminded of your 
great deliverance of us. Help us this day to think and receive from you ways in which we must step into the pain of our world to embody the hope again of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.